What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I've got special guest Tyler Cartwright on. Tyler, if you did not know, is one of the founders of the Keto Gains Group, and we dive into his backstory, kind of what brought him into the space. He's been in the space for forever. He's one of the OG guys that, I mean, that was in here. Uh, so there's a lot to be learned in that regard. We talked about macronutrient ratios. We talked about calories. We talked about some of these controversial topics, but we really started diving into... Uh, like the psychology around differentiating factors between ideologies as it relates to nutrition, like the whole vegan uh, side, the whole carnivore side, keto side, and honestly why there's so much separation in people and what they think and what their goals are. Uh, so we really kind of tried to connect on that and, and bring people towards a common goal because that's the only way to make any progress regardless of where your stance is on any of this. So Really enjoyed the conversation. I was impressed with how smooth it all went. And like I said, I was really impressed with his character. So sit back, relax, enjoy the conversation with Tyler Cartwright. And we're live. Tyler, how are you, man? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Good to have you on here. Good to have you on here. So I want to kind of dive in on a little background. You've been with the Keto Gains group for a while, and I feel like y'all were one of the OGs in the keto space. So I'd love to kind of just get some backstory on what brought you into the space in the first place. Sure. So backstory on me first, because it kind of leads into the other side of it. Um, so just a little over 14 years ago, I weighed just over a quarter of a U.S. ton. I was 505 pounds, uh, according to the grain scale and the or the loading scale in the back of my doctor's office because the scale in the office wouldn't weigh me. Um, and honestly, you know, I had to do something and I knew that, you know, for you know, sort of similar backgrounds, different eras, right? You know, I powerlifted, played football you know, tennis track, whatever in high school. And so, you know, you had to cut weight and what's the way you always cut weight. If you're a power athlete, right. You just, it's brown rice and, you know, and sweet potatoes and all the freaking chicken breasts you can possibly eat. And so I just kind of tilted in that direction to begin with and started looking at the science. My brother had actually decided to do this Atkins thing and I thought he was nuts and he was going to kill himself. And so, uh, dug into old biochemistry textbooks and physiology textbooks, just convinced I was going to prove to him that his, his kidneys were going to shrivel up and his, you know, his arms were going to fall off and his brain wasn't going to work. And the more I dug in, the more I realized that I was uh, just deluding myself into something that could potentially work. Right. Mm -hmm. So flash forward to um, probably eight years ago, seven years ago or so now, uh, created a Reddit account, um, you know, met this, this guy through Reddit and eventually through Facebook named Luis Villasenor, who is kind of the keto gains OG guy. And we're both 1980s pop culture junkies and <laughs> would laugh at lots of similar things and whatever else. And so, uh, you know, it's one of those things where a friendship turned into, we kind of looked at it as having a background sort of anorexic and mine from a binge eating perspective. We sort of laid these things over the top of each other and realized like, wait a minute, like 90 plus percent of this stuff is just the same set of advice that I would give anybody irrespective of their particular condition or situation or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
And it just started kind of coalescing into a community that's Facebook's 116,000, Reddit's like I think 145, Instagram's like another 40, 32, something like that. So the people that do this stuff tell us we've got like a reach of about a quarter of a million people now, which absolutely blows my, uh, you know, kind of rural West Kentucky brain up. I don't think that there were that many people in my half of the state growing up. And so, uh, you know, that was uh, kind of a really boiled down version of the whole story, but uh, I've just been around the scene. Lisa has been eating this way for almost two decades now. So uh, we've been around for a bit for sure. And Luis is in South America, right? No, he's in he's in Mexico. He's actually in Mexico City. Mexico City. So he's really tapping into like the that demographic. Um, I know like they had a Puerto Rican event not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he and Danny were there, and and a few other folks as well, right? So. Uh, and when when did y'all start actually putting out content and and kind of developing this into a, a brand, so to speak? Goodness, so. You know, probably four or five years ago, I was coming up towards the end of my active weight loss. And, you know, we had gotten into the realm of coaching people almost strong armed into it, right? We had several of the folks in the community who just created a Facebook instant message group chat and said, Hey, you're training us. We start on Monday. Tell us where to send the money. So, uh, you know, I'm working in telecommunications and making a really good living. And Luis is running a restaurant and some other businesses in Mexico and is doing just fine as well. And we were like, no, 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 we don't want this. And the comment was, well, you know, we've already put the money in your account. So we start Monday. Um, and so we kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into training folks. And, you know, we had always just kind of had the brand hanging out there as a, you know, look, we wanted people to know when there weren't a whole lot of other people in this space, in the low carb space saying, yes, you can be strong. Yes, you can train resistance training. Yes, you can go do, you know, CrossFit or whatever else it is that you want to do that involves weight bearing exercise and still be keto. We're very, very close there too. Right. And it was, this is real misnomer and a lack of, of people out there showing and doing that kind of stuff that drove us towards, kind of pushing the the messaging out there and probably let's say four years ago three four years ago now we got uh the community kind of blew up in terms of the numbers of folks and you know we now run a coaching groups you know big months will be up around 700 people uh in a group coaching format there's another 75 to 100 that we coach as one-on-one clients who are uh Mostly high-level athletes, uh, multi-sport athletes, uh, jiu-jitsu or mixed martial arts competitors, that sort of thing. All the folks that make you sign undisclosure agreements to work with them. So, uh, you know, so it's kind of, uh, it's been an interesting roller coaster over the last, I would say, five or six years all in all. It has been crazy to see the evolution of it all. I've, I've been strict keto now for like five going on six years. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when I got in, there was very little hype. Like it was kind of in the infancy stages. There was like, you know, one or two podcast uh, episodes, not even podcasts, but just episodes. And mm-hmm. then like a book or two. But I feel like three three years ago is when it really just started to ramp up. And now, I mean, it's it's everywhere. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things that, that was a real challenge, and I, I actually said this to Steve uh, a couple of years ago, 
um, that when Steve Finney and, and Jeff Bolick were doing some of the early research and stuff that they did, and even Finney predating Jeff's work with them, Steve likes bicycling. And so most of the people that were involved in his studies were just friends of his around the campus community, whatever, that just liked to ride bicycles. It wasn't that he was necessarily actively looking for athletes. He just kind of reached around and found a group of people who were physically active that made sense. And so a, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the, the early research that was done was done on, on, you know, bicyclists or endurance runners or whatever. And I think a lot of that was just out of convenience. Mm-hmm. And so it's great, you know, when we first really started coming back into this space, I mean, my background's powerlifting from way back and Luis got into it about 15, 20 years ago. And, you know, it's, it's just funny. There was nobody really talking about this. I think you hit the nail on the head, but there were so many of us just kind of quietly on our own little niche doing this and never talking about it in the gym. And never mentioning how we ate, you know, ordering the French fries with the food and then just kind of moving them off the plate and pretending we were full or, you know, whatever, because nobody really wanted to have those conversations or to get into the lectures. You know, it's the never tell somebody something that can't be done while he's in the process of doing it. Nobody just wants to hear that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it was just a. It was kind of the Cavalier Wild West days. And I know a few of you guys go back around the same time that we do and really kind of putting this content, this information out. And so it's great to see that messaging really starting to get traction that you don't have to be an endurance athlete to eat keto. You don't have to be afraid of going low carb or lower carb or or even keto if you're, uh, you know, even a high level performance athlete, especially out of season. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like there's so much research that points to that, but there's still a a massive misconception around there being... I mean, I feel like keto is starting to become much more accepted amongst endurance athletes and endurance sports, but I feel like there's this uh, underlying misconception that you need carbs uh, for, you know, strength-based or explosive movements. And I hear that now, given all the research that's out there, I'm just still kind of in disbelief that there's a question around that. No, it's, it's kind of interesting. Like, I, I mean, I have conjectured before and I've gotten in trouble with the keto police, I guess, um, that I do think that small amounts of carbohydrate are really advantageous. And I'm talking five, seven grams of carbohydrate sort of timed around your exercise. I think some of that's for what little marginal insulin bump you're going to get. But it also tends to give you more blood glucose, uh, you know, in circulation so that as you're training, you're not dipping into hypos, you're not, you know, you're not really having to jump into the physiology of stress, right? And so what we see with folks that we do that on, and I typically wouldn't recommend it for somebody unless they're pretty lean and pretty athletic, um, is they're able to stay in a gym two, two and a half, three hours, still going strong. And I think that's where it's really intriguing is, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar, you know, back in the days when you were doing, you know, heavy pulls, right? Mm-hmm. You might go in, do some warm ups, and hit what? Three sets of triples, you know, four or five sets of doubles, and you're out. I mean, the, this the taxation of that is insane. The other day, uh, we were doing a photo shoot and, and an interview, and I mean, it wasn't a super heavy weight, but I was probably seventy five percent of one rep max. And of course, with photographers, they don't really appreciate the taxation that happens when you're doing a pull like a deadlift and. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and they said, okay, we just need a few of these. And by the time that we finished the shoot, I had done like 42 repetitions at about 75, 80% of one rep max. Mm -hmm. And while I was completely exhausted, I got up the next morning, hit the gym at the hotel, went for a little walk that turned into a little jog and, you know, held court with people I'd never met before for six hours. My brain function was completely there and everything. And so I do, I think that the anecdotal evidence is there. And I think that people tend to judge a ketogenic diet based on their experiences. Oh, I went keto for two weeks. Well, excuse the expression, no crap. You, you lost, you know, you lost some strength and you lost some endurance, like give it two months, give it, you know, four months and let's see where you're at. Some people don't tolerate it well, admittedly, but the vast, vast majority of people that get their electrolytes dialed in, that get their protein dialed in, that get their, you know, even the timing of some of the carbohydrate, what little they're taking in dialed in are right back at baseline within three to four weeks and actually making progress and gains within, you know, five to six weeks out. So you know, it's like uh, I told somebody the other day, you don't go from racing NASCAR to racing Formula One and not expect there to be a learning curve and an, adapt- an adaptation curve. So why would we expect wholesale dietary changes to be different? Yeah, that is one frustration I have. They look at a lot of these studies, and there are some longer-term studies, but the, the bulk of them are all very short-term studies. And mm-hmm. the participants just do not have enough time to get truly adapted. I mean, I've noticed a difference in my performance based off of, you know, two weeks of adaptation versus six months of adaptation versus two years versus five years. And I, I, my theory is that the longer you are adapted, the more efficient that machinery becomes and you just continue to get better and better. And I mean, that would be a really hard study conduct to conduct because it'd be just, I feel like little adherence to it. Who's going to stick you in a met ward for the next three years of your life and monitor every uh, bathroom movement and every uh, push up that you do and every television show you watch, right? It's never going to happen. But you know, it's, it's interesting a couple of years ago. And, and like I said, I've been at this like 14 years. This is probably 10, 11, 12 years into, into this journey for me. Um, I, I, people get really upset about ketone levels, right? Well, here's the funny thing. I've literally never tested higher than 0.4. Mm-hmm. And people go, Oh, well, it's cause you're eating too much protein. So to prove a point for two weeks, I ate nothing but lard and salt. And it was the most insufferably disgusting diet. I can't there is no nice way to eat lard and salt. Like I tried freezing it like gelato. I tried heating it up to drink it. Like nothing makes lard not taste like lard. Yeah. Tested myself three times a day and every single, I got one 0.6 and the rest were 0.4. Um, at the same point in time, I actually went and had a metabolic cart panel done to look at RQ and try and assess like, you know, where am I getting the bulk of my calorie or bulk of my energy from? And RQ indicated that it was about 90 to 95% of all of my calories coming directly from fat. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, this is really interesting. So I was actually having a conversation with Don D'Agostino about this at an event you know, and his thoughts kind of mirror my own. And I think it, it's in line with what you're getting at, Robert. It's, it's, uh, when you've been eating this way for so long, there aren't a whole lot of free ketones that just hang out in circulation, right? Uh, we see that in some of the verted data. We see that from Westman's clinic. I was having a conversation with Eric about this at an event in Raleigh a couple of weeks ago. Um, people's ketone levels just go down. And this is talking about 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 24 weeks into it. But 
it does appear that the body's capacity for increasing its fatty acid uptake into tissues increases over time and that there's less fatty acid going to the liver and you know therefore less ability to produce ketones because the body is just super efficient at using fat and so the only way to really generate those ketones is to start eating more fat to be really frank and to really give that liver that first pass metabolism of doing it and so i think that there's a lot of long-term adaptations to chronic ketosis that nobody's really ever studied and, and to be frank i don't think we ever will be able to study but I think that there is a lot of really interesting theory behind what may be happening a year and two years and five years and 10 years into eating this way where the body just does things a little differently than it did before. Yeah. Um, I know, uh, for example, Rob Wolf and Mark Sisson have been kind of postulating this theory for a while. And I think they're probably onto something that because ketosis is sort of a, I would use the term semi-starvation, but I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. Um, diet, it mimics the the physiology of starvation a little bit, um, that the body becomes hyper-efficient with calories. And so, yes, there is a satiety effect of ketosis, but in long-term cases, one of the reasons that we may see that increase in calorie intake, or excuse me, that increase in, in body weight, even when calorie intake is maintained is because because the body has become massively hyper efficient at using the calories that are actually put into the system. So, I, you know, I, theories abound, but there's very little data to actually support any of them because nobody's funding that research. Well, I am in complete agreement with you regarding the, the lower ketone levels. I do think people obsess over blood ketone readings and that's just not necessary. I mean, my, my readings have, consistently trended down the longer I've been adapted but I know mm -hmm. that I'm not eating any carbs I mean very mm -hmm. very few trace carbs so like it's not like my body's not in a fat adapted state because I know my dietary carbohydrate sure. intake is exactly because you're actually tracking and paying attention right like that's the crazy thing and the, the very essence when we talk to researchers about this their conclusions are always the same it's well, this is just evidence that they're slipping off the diet, that there's that there's dietary indiscretion happening. And I'm like, well, I've weighed, measured, and tracked every bite of food that's gone in my mouth with the exception of probably 50 days in the last 12 and a half years. Yeah, yeah. And what are you going to say to me? And what are you going to say to, at this point, almost 3,000 clients that we've worked with over the last four years who all see a similar effect when they've stayed with us for six months, seven months, eight months, and they do occasionally test, their levels just go down. So it's just one of these things where it's like, okay, hey, at the end of the day, let's talk pragmatics. Are you getting the results you want? Because if you are, do you really care if you're 1.6 versus 2.1 versus 0 0.8? Does it really matter? And the truth of the matter is there's not a single study out there that shows any sort of putative benefit or effect that happens because we have some magic threshold of ketones. In fact, if you go back to the original data and look at some of the Finney stuff, the 0 0.5 number was, for lack of a better term, kind of just pulled out of the air. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't. They looked at the average, and I think it was like a standard deviation off of the average. I'm, I'm completely spitballing this from memory. There's like one standard deviation off of the average ketones that they saw in their bicyclist or in their subject, their study subjects. 
after a period of time where they knew that they were eating low carb. Gotcha. That was the basis for what they used to determine the 0.5 number. There was no study and no scientific consensus about this. It was just the arbitrary number based on a handful of subjects. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, they'll talk about their cognitive uh, enhancement when they notice a higher ketone rating. But I feel like more often than not, that is often just a placebo effect of they feel more cognitively enhanced when they can look down and see that that number is north of Mm -hmm. 1.5 but that's oftentimes not the case i think it's twofold i do think it's cognitive um you know in terms of an improvement there to a certain degree um and if you want proof of this uh feel free to give this a try uh, because it's awful go ahead and consume the living crap out of ketone salts you know find your local favorite brand whoever it is and consume way more than you normally would and let me know how you feel Because I'll guarantee you that about the time that you blow way past your kind of normal average running number for ketones, you're going to get mildly to moderately nauseous. And you're just really, really, really not going to want to do much of anything. But up to a threshold point, I do think that there is probably a cognitive benefit. Now, I think there was a meta-analysis release that said uh, using ketone esters showed no cognitive improvements, but it was a really short-term assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a question between metabolically healthy individuals and cognitive function versus if you've got somebody who is metabolically deranged and put them to the same battery of testing. Um, but you know, the flip side of that coin is I also think that there's a massive placebo effect that happens in our, you know, and I wouldn't say just in our space, but in fitness and health and sports and all of these areas in general, there's kind of that, if I believe a thing is true, then I manifest that truth. Right. So, uh, There's this study from the hospital uh, where they, I think it was either meniscus or ACL injuries with uh, veterans. It was at a VA hospital. And it was a small scale thing where they basically took half of the group and put them under anesthesia and did the procedure. Mm -hmm. And the other half of the group they put under anesthesia, made a small incision, stitched them back up and told them they had done the procedure. And at the end of, I think it was like six months or a year, the reported uh, feelings of, of improvement were the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, it's an evidence towards just how powerful our ability to believe a thing to be true really is in terms of how it affects our perception of truth. Oh, it's huge, man. It's huge. Speaking of, of ketone salts, what is your take on uh, using ketone salts as a mechanism for increased fat loss? There's a theory that if you're exogenously... Uh, you know, taking in a bunch of these salts, your your body's going to be less likely to endogenously have that fat oxidation. What What's your take on that? So this is one of those 20-minute answers I'm going to try and shoehorn into about two. So you're going to have to forgive me here. But so anytime your ketones rise above what's probably a relatively individual number, the the ketones themselves, specifically beta-hydroxybutyrate, tends to act antagonistically to fat cells with respect to hormone-sensitive lipase. So what that means is the hormone that's responsible for freeing the fat that's stored in your fat cells, the one that we always talk about with respect to insulin Mm -hmm. and how insulin blunts that effect, um, beta-hydroxybutyrate acts sort of like a, can I swear on here? Can I say bastard insulin? If not, blur me out here. Sorry. (laughs) It sort of acts like insulin's little brother. 
um, in terms of the way that it slows fast. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about the body as a hyper-efficient engine. Mm -hmm. I mean, engineers have studied human metabolism just trying to understand how the body is so hyper-efficient with its fuel partitioning. And one of the ways that that works is insulin, but there's all these other hormones that have signaling functions as well. And I think leptin and ghrelin and all the stuff that people that talk about being hungry all the time or not ever getting hungry talk about and you know in their research are examples of those. But beta-hydroxybutyrate specifically blunts fat loss or spe specifically blunts fat mobilization. I should be very precise here. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is when beta-hydroxybutyrate levels go up, the body responds by actually secreting insulin. And I mean, this is pretty well documented in the literature. And so there is an increase in basal insulin that exists as long as ketone levels are higher than they need to be, physiologically higher than they need to be. So there is an argument that if you consume exogenous ketones, it's adding you know, an energy source of about six calories per gram of ketone salt consumed can make you a little more cognitively proficient it could theoretically make you uh, there's an argument that they function as like a nootropic which is just a compound that helps to stimulate brain activity um and uh, like an ergogenic so sort of like tylenol for a headache they tend to make your perception of exertion and frustration and effort lower mm -hmm. so maybe you do more exercise maybe you go for a, a more walk maybe you you have more willpower to say no to seconds at dinner or whatever um, so there's a little bit of an argument both sides of that conversation. I think from a physiologic perspective, there's no question that adding ketones in excess will absolutely stall fat loss on an almost gram for gram basis, which is um, not going to make my friends that sell that stuff super happy that I say it, but I've never pulled punches on that and wrote an article about it several years ago when these things were getting really popular. But I do think that there's a place for them. I think I've seen a number of high performance athletes really see advantages in terms of their ability to think and function during kind of the midst of their sport. Um, I've also seen folks uh, like professional poker players, online poker players who were using these things to try and keep their mind sharp for hours and hours and hours um, while they sit there just grinding away. I've also seen some promising kind of anecdotal stuff. And I think there's some studies ongoing with respect to ketone supplementation for cancer patients, for neurodegenerative disease, for epileptic disorders in order to give especially children, some flexibility in the diet. You know, I think that they've got great applications. I just don't think fat loss is one of them. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly how I how I view it as well. I feel like, like me personally, I'll use it uh, like in a building phase or an off-season. I feel like there may be some application there for recovery um, and definitely the, you know, the, the cognitive enhancement, but I don't think it makes sense for a fat loss uh, as, a, as a fat loss supplement, and I don't use it when I'm in like a contest prep, for instance, I feel like the sure. caloric intake you're getting from it and the fact that it may shunt the, the ability to, to lose fat is not offset enough by your performance benefit per se. Exactly. And I think that, you know, and you're a business guy, right? So, I mean, you can appreciate what I'm about to say. Everything we do to our bodies is basically one big physiologic cost benefit analysis, right? Because there's a physiologic cost and there's a physiologic benefit. And, so kind of hinted before when I said, you know, how 
are you getting the results you want? That really, that pragmatic answer should really drive a lot of the decisions that we make about what we put in our bodies. Are we getting the results right now? And are those results likely to continue and sustain? And are we doing any long-term damage for short-term benefit? Those are really the only three questions we should be asking ourselves or asking, you know, of your coach, if you're out there and you, you know, you're being coached by somebody is, is, are these things yeses? Are they check marks? Are they, you know, are we good to go? And if they are friggin' chill, <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, if you like the taste of ketones, if you enjoy the taste of, you know, BCAAs, go for it, I guess. You know, I tend to be a guy who wants to save people money. So if I don't see there being a real benefit, my inner pragmatist kicks in and I tell people, hey, I wouldn't spend money on it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, if, if it's something you enjoy, if it breaks the monotony of, you know, chugging nothing but broth before you work out or you know, homebrewing your own thing at the, you know, before you go to the gym or whatever, like more power to you. I I don't have a big dog in that hunt, but I'd be pissed off if I had spent $5,000 over the last 10 years buying a supplement only to find out that it was completely sold a bill of goods. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like marketing it as a fat loss supplement is an ethical decision. Uh, I agree. And I have admittedly seen a lot of the companies making this stuff, backing off of those claims and really uh, some of the MLM folks really trying to encourage their uh, branded, whatever they are, the brand ambassadors or whatever to really stop with a lot of that nonsense. Because to be honest, there's no clinical data to prove the point. Yeah, totally agree. Another thing I want to kind of pick your brain on is your approach and view towards uh, the different macronutrient ratios. I know, you know, there's a lot of talk out there as far as what is optimal. Um, it all comes down to a very bio individual on a, on a certain basis. But like me, I, I tend to gravitate towards a higher fat ratio, keto. Mm-hmm. And I know keto gains as a whole typically, you know, goes by the, the use fat as a lever, have a higher protein intake. So I'm curious to just get your, your thoughts on your reason sure. there. So I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. I took a gentle swipe at Steve uh, earlier, and I'm going to kind of use him as a as a poster child for conversation. So we actually ran an average-sized individual through our calculator and then compared that person to Steve Finney's original recommendations from the Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living. And I think we were like six grams of protein higher. So, I mean, I think that there's kind of this illusion that, ooh, we're high protein. I think that people tend, especially people that are coming from a place of obesity or overeating, tend to drastically underestimate just how much they're eating. That eight ounces of sirloin isn't really eight ounces of sirloin. It's more like 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the clinical data on this stuff really does back me up on that claim. So I think I would argue first that we're probably just pro-tracking everything, at least for a while, until you kind of reset what six ounces of meat looks like or what three ounces of meat looks like and what, you know, a cup of vegetable cooked and raw looks like. And you just kind of get your brain around those sorts of things. Um, I think this is where I come down to it. The risk of having too little protein versus the risks of having too much drive our recommendations towards saying, hey, if I'm 10 grams too high, so be it. I'd rather be 10 grams too high. And I mean, when you're dealing with, you know, our demographic for folks that we work with in terms of group-based coaching is, you know, 30 to 55-year-old women, most of whom have some sort of metabolic dysregulation, 
I have to worry about things like age-related sarcopenia, and I have to worry about shifted leucine response curves and all those things that drive the need for protein a little bit higher than what it would be if they were 20-year-old or 25-year-old folks. I mean, let's – I know you appreciate that and can, can, can agree with me, I think, on that point. And so, you know, I'm not really – it's funny people see us as dogmatic and I'm really not, but here's my thing. If somebody's physiologic needs are, let's say 1200 calories a day before they start to, to gain or to break even, and they've got goals or designs of losing weight, it's really hard to maintain ratio based decision-making there Yeah, and get sufficient protein. It's just tough. And so if I had to choose, I would tell somebody, always prioritize protein to make sure you're getting enough. And we can spend 45 minutes, I'm sure, debating what the definition of enough protein is. But I think it's a moving target, and that's what makes it difficult. But making sure that you're getting enough, probably getting DEXA tested or, or BOD pod tested or something to make sure that you're not losing lean mass you know, over every 90 days, 180 days, and making adjustments. And then moderating the fat around what your goal is, right? Um, it just kind of seems to make sense. And, you know, the last time that we did the math, the coaching community for group coaching has lost about 283,000 pounds or so. So it, it just works. I mean, um, I think that there are applications. I think that there are individuals for whom that approach is stupid. I'm just being really honest. I think that that's why our model tends to adapt. Meaning if somebody's got goals of being, you know, looking like you, right. Or if somebody's got, you know, visions of wanting to go compete in triple Ironman or whatever, like, yeah, those people are going to be ultra high fat, but I've always just used this analogy. Uh, and it's one that, uh, I'll point my finger at Ted Naiman and say he stole it, but he'll tell me I stole it from him. You know, he's got this meme sort of thing out there that says, if your body is already high fat, then all you need is the low carb. And I think that there's some truth to that. The body doesn't starve itself, especially in a low insulin environment. The body's not going to starve itself from calories. So if the caloric need or the physiologic need is higher than the calories that you're consuming or the energy that you're bringing in, the reality is the body's just going to take the fat off of your rear end and off of your thighs and off of your belly and off of wherever else it's going to raid the cookie jar. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't think that our approach is quite what people interpret it to be because they're looking at the polar extremes of, of what we do. Right. So we're looking at folks who are, you know, quite frankly, massively overweight or who are, you know, potentially really trying to diet down before contest prep or whatever else. And then people will freak out going, they're eating 1100 calories a day. And I'll say, and they're complaining to us the whole time about how they can't possibly eat this much food. Because when you're using a very nutrient dense, very low refined diet. So I use the term whole foods, but now you have to put a registered trademark R after it, I think. I don't know. But just a, a diet that's not super refined just seems to increase tidy to the point that we don't want to overeat. Like there's this natural gravitation there. And so when we use keto with people who are trying to gain, we almost have to make considerations for, hey, 
if you want ultra high fat foods, look, your, your boxes are already checked for all of your micronutrient requirements. Your boxes are already checked for, you know, for sufficient protein. So now it's just a calories game right now, which just fuel your body for the thing that you want to do. And so we've got, you know, a number of, of clients right now whose fat intakes are upwards of 80% of the calories that they consume in the course of the day. So it's, it's hard to pin down what we do because the scale kind of moves depending on what we're trying to accomplish with an individual. But yeah, I don't really begrudge high fat approaches and I don't really begrudge like the PSMF type approaches. Both have their applications and both work. And I think that there's certain aspects of just personal preferences, assuming that we can agree that there's a certain amount of protein that's needed for every person every day. Yeah, how the I, I hell can, you fill the rest of your calories up? I, I, I'm not super worried about. I can agree with that for sure. I feel like there's been a a massive trend towards being a fearful of protein, which I don't like to see. I feel like a lot of people are scared mm -hmm. of protein in large part because they're they're worried about their ketone numbers. And I know y'all's yes. philosophy of you know go go for results, not chase ketones, which I agree with. Um, I I for me it's it's interesting because what I'm trying to accomplish with my nutritional protocol is a very niche specific task like I'm going from a building phase as a, as a natural bodybuilder into a cutting phase and I'll transition mm -hmm. I'll make protein my most manipulated variable and titrate protein down very low throughout the course of my contest prep I think my last prep I was down to 65 grams which is admittedly very low but my my priority has shifted from building muscle to conserving muscle and I'm, I'm I optimize and I function at a much higher rate when my primary fuel source being the fat is is a higher ratio relative to protein but that's a brief moment in time in the grand scheme of things I'm not at 65 grams of protein uh, you know indefinitely and I feel like a lot of people see these numbers at a glance and they just assume that that's what I advocate or they see numbers that you're suggesting at a glance and assume that's what you're advocating Yes. And I would agree. I think that it's, it's a natural sort of, uh, this is where I get political and I've, I try and avoid it really hard, but I do think that the country is divided between left hand, right hand, right? I do think that we live in a society right now that is looking at extreme examples and pitting them against each other because they're advocating or aligning themselves into like this weird tribal sort of thing. And I think that the reality is if we probably laid our protocols over the top of each other, just like I mentioned with Luis and I and, you know, different lenses through which to view diet, they're probably 85% or 90% aligned. And yet people, you know, and I think the keto community and the paleo community and a number of other places have been more guilty of it than anywhere else, but it's just, that's my upbringing. So maybe it's just because I'm more familiar with that space. They're busy taking shots at everybody else. And it's just this constant infighting of like, you know, hey, um, you know, calories don't matter. Yes, they do. Hey, hormones don't matter. Yes, they do. Hey, individuality doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Hey, you know, the, the challenge is everybody wants to reduce somebody's position to a straw man and then set it on fire. Yeah. And I think that it's it's a disservice to all of the people who have succeeded in those approaches and those protocols and, and have had great success with those coaching teams and whatever else. You know, I do find it admittedly very frustrating in the space that folks are out here saying, oh, well, 
you know, calories are a fictitious invention and they don't matter and that we can't measure them very effectively anyway. And I would agree that we're not super effective at measuring calories. I'd love to flesh that out a little bit if you would, but, if you're interested. Yeah, for sure. But I don't think that the answer to a poor measurement is no measurement at all. Yeah. And I don't know that we really have anything other than measuring outcome, which is a you know, again, getting back into your business background and mine, it's trailing indicator of success, not a leading indicator of success. Right. And so it's, it's kind of a a difficult conversation, but sure. Let's, uh, whatever you want to talk about, I'm open. First of all, I'm just amazed at how blind certain groups are to the totality of what, what the inputs are. For instance, there's groups and often, um, oftentimes they're not even in the, the keto space, like the flexible dieting group is, is mm-hmm. known for this, but they put such an emphasis on calories and calories in versus calories out that they pay very little to no attention to, you know, the quality of those calories, the macronutrient breakdown of those calories, hormones, or any other variable for that matter. And I feel like there's a lot of people Sorry. in the keto space that are just so far the other direction and put all the emphasis mm-hmm. on hormones and they just write calories off as as a as a wash and like like me as a bodybuilder like I feel like I've got a pretty good position to hone in on you know what variables I'm manipulating and getting real time feedback on my body and again that's that is not a, a scientific back study this is me just anecdotally speaking but I can assure sure. you that calories matter. <laughs> Well, and this is the funny thing, right? Like, I agree, but if you really sit down and talk, like, so for a good example of this, and people are going to cringe when I say this, Lane, uh, Lane Norton and I are friendly and have been for a while, and we chat semi-occasionally. Um, I don't think – I think that ultimately calories drive the bus, right? Mm-hmm. I do. But that's not all there is to having a bus, <laughs> You need wheels on the bus. You need seats on the bus. You need seat belts on the bus. You need, hopefully it's not just sheet metal and doom. It's, you know, it's got some paint and, you know, some, some suspension and a transmission and a motor. You know, the reality is when we look at a proper energy balance model, it's not, it both is and isn't calories in calories out. The CICO model that people are again, banging the drum against is a straw man that needs to be set fire because it's completely fictitiously untrue. Does it drive the bus for physiologic outcomes? Sure. But that's great. You lost weight and you feel like shit. Like, you know, is that really what you want? And you've been there. Go ask anybody who's gone through the misery of contest prep, how they feel right before they get on stage. Mm -hmm. They want to lay on the floor and cry. They haven't eaten, you know, it's like they live on a diet of ice cubes the last 48 hours, ice cubes and salt the last 48 to 72 hours. They're miserable. And I'm like, yeah, I can starve calories off of somebody. But is that really a sustainable lifestyle, a sustainable diet? No. So how do we modulate that? Well, we introduce individual genetic variations. Do we have a good beat on those? Not really. Um, we introduce diets where the hormonal responses work. Because remember, I'm not trying to solve the diet for the, the entirety of the world. I don't think there's any one diet that is really the diet. Right. But I do think that for some people who have issues with binge eating or with a history of obesity and you know some really wonky insulin curve, um, you know, a host of other reasons, this diet really works. And if we're to believe some of the data that's come out of like the lab core folks and 
and out of the out of you know some of the stuff that Kraft was doing, not Kraft the food, but Kraft the doctor, you know, about eighty. Let's say the number was like eighty-three percent of people are already showing signs of insulin resistance predominantly in the fat tissues before they show up in muscle tissues and organ tissues. It's staggering. Which means that, yeah, it's, it's scary because we're getting bigger and we're getting bigger and we're getting bigger and we're sitting here arguing over whether there's 300 inputs to energy balance or 312. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I agree. Calories matter. I agree. Hormones matter. I agree. Genetics matter. I agree. Epigenetics, like your environment and your stress levels and your sleep and all of these things matter. I believe your pathology matters. Hey, if you've got, you know, particular dietary disorder or disease and you, you know, you've got some kind of a leaky gut thing or you've had resected bowel surgery. So now you're getting 60% of the nutrients from your food. You know, all of this stuff is going to coalesce into a model that is huge and complicated, but I can't control your genetics. I can control two things in your diet, and that's the number of calories you consume to a rough approximation and the hormonal effects of those calories based on both the the amount of those types of foods that you're eating and also the choices of what foods you're actually eating, right? And I, I think we're completely in agreement there. The other things that I can control, I can tell you to go to frick to bed at 10 o'clock at night and have spent an hour off of all your screens before you do to have some kind of a repetitious prayer or mantra or thing that you do to get into a routine and a rhythm before you go to sleep. You know, I can encourage you to, to not flee from conflict, but to pursue it so that you kind of put some of that stuff to bed and you can go to sleep with a clearer conscious and a sounder mind. You know, all of that stuff is going to factor into those decisions about how many calories you need, what the effect and the outcome is, and all that stuff. And so everybody just wants to bang the drum against the straw man for, you know, the folks in the IIFYM or the, the flexible dieting world. There is sort of this belief that everybody that eats keto believes that the only thing that matters for obesity is insulin. That's it. Like insulin is the full stop answer to all things obesity or or or, or underweight. Um, and I, I'm just too steeped in this space to believe that to be true. Even the folks that are being held up as the poster children for that belief, when you sit down and have a conversation with them, will freely admit that there's a thousand other factors that play in, but insulin's one that we can control. Right. Um, you know, on the other side of the coin, exactly what you said, there's a demographic in the keto space that that is fully of the belief that insulin is the only thing that determines one's obesity state. And, you know, they'll use examples like, well, I can inject insulin into somebody repeatedly and then the spot where I inject that insulin becomes fat. Well, sure, you're locally injecting super physiologic levels of insulin into one location of the human body. That's not a replication of what happens in the human system when the pancreas' beta cells secrete insulin. Like that's the two aren't really related. That's like saying, hey, the brain produces DMT. Mm-hmm. So the effect that I get from my brain's natural production of DMT, which for those of your listeners that don't know, is a pretty trippy psychedelic. Um that means that the amount that I get when I supplement DMT by going to my local dealer and picking some up, those things are exactly the same. The response is the same. Well, they're not. 
dose makes poison. And that's true of water. That's true of every medicine that's over the counter, every prescription medication that we have. That's true of food. And we just want to play this game where we need to boil everything down to a singular cause. Yeah. I'm fat because this. I'm skinny because that. I am old because this. I'm young because that. I mean, that when we can boil down, it's your birthday. But, you know, there, there's just this this rush towards simplifying things. And, and, and uh, I'm probably going to misattribute it because I've heard it attributed to Einstein. And I don't know if he actually said it. But the argument was reduce things to their simplest, uh, their, their, their least complicated or their simplest, and then no further. When you oversimplify things, you create the straw men that people are going to use to burn. And I just feel like we've got a lot of that in our community where we've been our own worst enemy with respect to finding scientific consensus and the constant banging of the drum that it's us versus them. They said this, they said that. I mean, I saw a fairly prominent PhD in the community post something the other day on, on Twitter. They said, they, they, uh, they said, uh, they told us that this was harmless. They told us that this wasn't a problem. They, and I'm like, and they're always going to, you don't need to have a boogeyman because at the end of the day, this is just about getting people healthy. I don't need a boogeyman or a, or, or a monster that lives under my bed in order to believe that if I change the way that I eat, I'm going to affect the outcome that I have. I don't need to throw every doctor that's ever existed and every nutritionist under the bus to realize that some of them got it right and some of them got it wrong. Yeah, so, I, you I know, agree. I have, I have mixed feelings because at the end of the day, you show me a doctor who's got a quarter of a million dollars in medical debt and they're trying to run a practice and they believe very strongly in what you and I are sitting here talking about, but they know that the state's going to pull their medical license if they keep talking. So they drop hints and they insinuate and they encourage lifestyle change, but they continue to prescribe medication. And now the same people that they're trying to help are lobbing rocks over the wall and saying, you know, you didn't go far enough. Why aren't you out here speaking in active opposition to the status quo? Because you can't bankrupt school debt. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of have an empathy for that whole situation. And so, you know, I just don't. I don't think it's as simple as either side wants to make it. And let's not even begin to ignore the, the psychological aspects of eating. The fact that we eat sometimes just because we're angry, you know, the emotional things, the hedonic aspects of eating that have nothing at all to do with the physiology. People don't eat the same way in a metabolic war that they do in real life. Well, with, with that said, I mean, with you being in the space as long as you have, with you kind of seeing how it's transgressed over the years, what do you, I mean, what what are the next five years going to look like in your opinion? Do you feel like we're going to get our shit together and actually come to a consensus, or do you feel like it's just going to be a constant war raging between multiple sides? I'm the worst futurist in history, so um, <laughs> I, was optimistic. I was a <laughs> I was a hundred percent convinced that the that the ketone salts thing were going to take, <clears throat> excuse me what was a very effective way of lifestyle intervention to help people who had specific problems with their diet or their choices or whatever to get healthier. And they were going to turn it into a pill, a powder and a potion. And unfortunately I'll give you a good example with that. And, and I don't know if Danny's experienced some of this too, with respect to the Latino market, but I know Luis has experienced this where 
the I'll use the term pill pushers, the folks who were selling pill based ketone salts, all of those as seen on Shark Tank, you know, scam artists, whatever that that is already what a large number of people in Central America and South America believe is the definition of a keto diet. Yeah. So it's already poisoned the well. But I was out here four or five years ago screaming about how I thought this was going to be the death of keto. And then honestly, the whole thing has kind of played out a little bit. So maybe I'm a little bit on the the extremist uh, alarmist tip here with the, you know, with respect to my observations. But I do feel a sense of coming back to the middle, right? I think one of the things that happens in a fringe industry like and let's not kid ourselves keto is still pretty fringe with respect to diet and lifestyle and exercise and all of those things um there is a real effort that exists in there's a real effort that exists out there for people to see the world as a fixed pie model Mm -hmm. and so any success that one party has immediately gets met with an effort to tear down the other party because they sense that, oh, well, their success is my diminishment. And, and I've said this before, and I mean this, I think that there is, if anything is going to stop this train from rolling, it's going to be two things. One is refusal to face the physiologic truth that there is no one singular cause of obesity and unhealth but that a lot of things that we're doing right now are novel for our time in history. The, the way that we eat, the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we engage with one another, those things are all really novel, meaning they've never happened in the history of humanity, and we're reaping those negative consequences. I think that that's going to be one side of it is trying to reduce that whole argument down to just one simple, you know, like a clickbait thing, one simple trick for fixing everything. Um, I think the other side is going to be just putting aside egos and setting aside really minor deviations. I mean, we talked a minute about different approaches to a ketogenic diet. At the end of the day, we're not that friggin' far off. And, and here's the thing. I don't begrudge or see anybody else's success as being detrimental to what we do if we continue to take care of people if we continue to get them healthy and we continue to grow the message that there is a sane and rational voice coming from this low carbohydrate or this ketogenic lifestyle then everybody benefits i mean there's going to be businesses and opportunities and coaching and all those things that are going to happen but it's the grandmas and the grandpas and the moms and dads and the kids and all the people who were the, the ultimate beneficiaries of that, that voice that says, yeah, this is one thing and we're all aligned, but there's like 12 different ways to do it. And, and I'll give you a good example of this and then I'll shut up because I'm going long winded here for sure. No, you're good. Um, the Game Changers movie and Forks Over Knives and all these movies, you look at these movies that are clearly very pro-vegetarian or pro-vegan they had millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of funding. Much of that was crowdsourced funding. And yet Diana Rogers has a, has a a movie coming out along with a book called sacred cow talking about regenerative agriculture and regenerative uh, animal husbandry and how the reality is you will plant based is not the direction of the future because we don't have that many harvests left in our soil. If we don't fix the soil quality and it's very, pro-keto, very 
pro-paleo, very pro-ancestral diet. And she's basically having to beg, plead, borrow, and steal to get anybody to help to fund this thing. And it's just an example, I think, of how fragmented and fractured our community really is. And I think that some of that has been because naturally we gravitate towards extreme messages. But I also think that some of that is because there have been people in this space who have no business being in this space and have no business, quite frankly, running business, um, who actively have just maligned this community and walked away with millions and millions of dollars, having done absolutely nothing to help a single person. And I think that it's on our honor and our obligation is step up and say, hey, look, we're like 90% aligned in this stuff. And most of the other 10% is just personal preference, maybe different demographics, whatever. But, you know, this is all about helping people. And we just got to set the friggin' egos and all the BS aside and figure out how the hell we're going to do that. That is a, a very, very true statement. And I completely agree. And I hope that resonates with everybody listening because... Like I was, I've been just diving deep into like the Joe Rogan podcast, you know, with the mm-hmm. Game Changers documentary right now and listen to it. And I started, you know, diving into the comment section. It's just, I made a post on earlier today or yesterday because there's just so much hate from both sides. And mm-hmm. they are very polar opposite sides. But at the end of the day, like if you look at what the vegans are trying to accomplish and you look at what we're trying to accomplish, even though the, the, direction of finding that solution is very different the the goal is is pretty similar it's pretty aligned you know i don't think there's many keto carnivore low-carb people there that want to see the earth just diminished i mean we all want the same thing and what's frustrating is you look at the issues that those groups have like the vegans versus the mediator groups and then you look inwardly within our own groups the keto the carnivore the low-carb the paleo and there's just just as much hate going back from from one or the other i mean there's people out there that legitimately want you know keto savage versus keto gains because of our fat recommendation ratios like what the hell i mean like is that well, necessary I'll, I'll, I'll give you I'll, I'll give you a good example of that and this is one that that really sticks in my craw um i don't even know if i have a craw i don't even know what that is but if i did that's where it would stick <laughs> um you know a while back I wrote an article talking about gluconeogenesis and about the physiologic reality of how it actually works. And there have been some studies in low carbohydrate diets and, and G and G and, you know, it was kind of bringing those things out. And so Adam Nally and, and Jimmy Moore did kind of a pretty scathing review of it based on a, a, a comment or a listener's question about my article. And so I was a little irritated, admittedly, because predominantly they didn't seem to have actually read my article. They just cherry picked some points and said, it's clear this person doesn't know what he's talking about. And so I, I kind of went through in our community, and Jimmy's been a member of our community for a number of years now, and out on these things, and I tagged him in it because I don't believe in, for lack of a better word, I'm talking shit behind people's back. I'll say what I think to somebody's face, right? And... You know, I posted this and immediately people started tagging Jimmy go, hey, you, sh- you guys should have a debate. You guys should have a debate. You should get on a show and you guys should fight it out. And I'm like, at the end of the day, it's a really trivial point of human physiology. And even if I'm dead wrong, 
gluconeogenesis represents maybe two to three percent of the total energetic effect of a human being in the course of any given day. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny, tiny point. But it was so being misrepresented in the keto community, I just felt like I had to step up and say something. And so, yeah, I took issue with the fact that that what I was saying was being misrepresented. But Jimmy and I don't really have any big beef with one another. I don't think he's right about some things, and he doesn't think I'm right about some things. But at the end of the day, last time I saw him at Metabolic Health Summit, I gave him a big old hug and told him I appreciate him. You know, it's I'm not somebody who's ready to go out here like we had at a conference we did in vegas a couple of years ago when someone legitimately went to the venue to the hotel and told them that luis and i were threatening to beat up anybody in the parking lot who said that we were wrong i was like well i was a pastor for seven years and luis is a pacifist so i'm not sure how that computes with you know curb stomping people in the parking lot but uh you know, this is the weirdness of this community in general, and I don't mean just ours, but of any kind of fledgling health community. And so, you know, it's just it's funny to me that people immediately seized on that that one critique of a critique to think that like, oh, I hate Jimmy and everything he stands for. That man has helped more people than I'll probably ever I'll ever see. Yeah. And for me to point the finger and say, how dare you? Yeah, I have some disagreements with the applications of some of the stuff that he says. Hell, I've got disagreements with 90% of the people that I know, but that doesn't stop me from linking arms with them and saying in the grander scheme of things, these are trivial. But yeah, the community, the comment section, sort of the peanut gallery just wants to create, I think, adversaries where there isn't a need for an adversary. And in the, in, at the end of the day, I just wonder how much of that is being stirred by people who just want to watch the, the keto world burn, you know, saying things through bot accounts and alter egos or whatever, just for the sole purposes of pitting us against ourselves so that we're so busy fighting that we can't actually make any effective change and improve anybody's life. And so they're laughing all the way to the ideological, the ideological hearts of, you know, everybody in the world. Um, because I will say like even the vegan thing, right. I am vehemently anti-vegan with respect to thinking that it is the sole answer to the problem. Right. But I have no issue with an ethical vegan, somebody who's eating this way because they feel like it's, it's not right to eat Bambi or whatever. Like that's your choice. And I'll support you in that because I want to have your support and my choice to hunt and fish and you know, and to buy local beef when I can afford it and whatever else. Like those are, we should be supporting each other in those kinds of things. And yet, meanwhile, it's, well, if you're a vegan, you're stupid and everything about you is stupid. Well, if you're keto, you're an insulin moron. And, you know, like there's all these derogatory things flying and I just don't think they're necessary. I really don't. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like human psychology, I haven't figured it out because people will flock to a, <laughs> negative posts though the flock to mm-hmm. any any spark that they can blow and light into a flame to see people hurt but like any mm-hmm. positive comment any positive post gets a trivial amount of attention like it gets no engagement but all of this negative uh you know momentum it just it just blows up blows up and it just i don't mm-hmm. understand that i don't know why that is but it's so obvious that that is what it is you know, you know, I think a lot of it is, 
I have a long-winded answer for that, but I think a lot of it is just people that have to pretend all day long face-to-face because of a host of other reasons that they like the person they're standing in front of or that they're happy to be with this person or this company or this team or whatever, go online where there's a pseudo-anonymity and they just feed all of those angry things back into how manipulative they can be. It's almost like a weird sort of a digital sociopathy that exists out there. And I don't really understand what it is, you know? And, and I think another thing that exists also is that when you're doing things in written form, people can't really hear the heart behind the message. And so if you write one wrong word, or if you use a term in a way that's not the same between countries, right? So for example, like the word idiot in English, it just means doofus, but in, you know, and especially in Mexico, it has a much deeper, much more nasty meaning. Um, and you use the wrong word and people can't see past it because they don't see the heart of all of the rest of the message. They just zero in on that one word or that one phrase or that one sentence or that, that one hard truth. Yeah. Right. And so they don't want to hear or see that this person. And so it becomes really easy when you feel slighted by that person to paint them into the corner where everything they say is the devil. Everything they think is the devil. Everything they believe is the devil. And therefore they're super bad and everything they say is bad and their people are bad and the people around them are bad. And anybody who believes them is a bad person. And it, what it foments or what it creates is sort of a pseudo religious ideology. And I do see that in this space, you know, I do see a lot of language around this diet that sounds like the language I grew up with in church. And I have to be honest, that scares the pants off of me. Yeah, I would, I would hope, you know, I, I would like to think that people can hear this conversation and recognize this and try to be the better person. Uh, I, I try and always adopt a an open-minded philosophy towards anything because I truly believe that you can learn something from, from everybody that you come in contact with. And I feel like a lot of it stems from people's just lack of self-awareness and lack of self-confidence. Like when you're truly confident in who you are, and what you stand for, like you're not really bothered or swayed by the noise that's out there, the bullshit that's out there. Like people can leave negative comments and messages on my threads all day long, but I don't really let it get to me because I'm, I know who I am, I know what my intentions are. And I feel like if more people knew who they were, this would not be an issue. Well, you know, I spent a number of years working post-sales engineering. Um, and basically what that is is when somebody designs a network and they sell the network to the company. I'm the guy who has to deal with all of the broken stuff, right? Like, so when the network goes down, I have to, I have to bite the bullet. I have to take the sword. I, you know, whatever. And I've joked for years that I'm so used to being yelled at after doing that for six of the 17 years that I worked in telecom. I have like a hole in my side where the sword goes in and goes out and I don't even feel it. You know, you might call it thick skin or whatever else. And I think you're kind of the same place. You know what you're about. And you know that at the end of the day, angry people say angry people things. And I don't even really hold it against them anymore. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it it actually makes me sad that, like, they go through life with that much anger and that much venom and that much, like, you know, how awful must that be? I mean, it actually kind of breaks my heart because, like, 
what didn't go right in your life that you feel like, you know, calling Robert a piece of trash is somehow advantageous or, or saying keto gains is killing people is somehow advantageous. Like none of those things are true. Yeah. And yet it, it becomes completely acceptable to say in society. And I just, I don't get it. Well, it's easy to say it behind a computer screen. You know, I, I yeah, doubt exactly. many of these people would say these the, things the, face the, to face. Yeah. The internet gangsters, right? Yeah, for sure. I actually had, I was telling the story a while back at a conference. I actually had a woman reach out to me when she found out that I don't have my daughter eating a ketogenic diet, um, contacted child protective services in the state that I live in and, um, notified them that she had reason to believe that a child was being endangered. Wow. That's so I ended up having to deal. Yeah. (laughs) I ended up having to deal with a phone call and some emails being traded to prove that my child, who's a foot taller than every other kid her age, um, was somehow being, you know, maligned or, or malnourished or whatever else. Yeah. That's insane, man. That is insane. Listen, I don't want to take up too much time. We've been on here for over an hour, but I will say this. I didn't honestly know what to expect going into this conversation because I've heard all the noise from all the, the, you know, peanut gallery, as we've said it. And I've never talked with you directly. I've never had the opportunity to have you on the podcast in the past. Uh, I'm glad that we've done this because I feel like at the end of the day, like you said, our, our intentions and our, uh, protocols are, are not too far off from one another. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all trying to do the same thing. So there's no point or purpose for being negative, uh, or having this animosity towards one another. So, I appreciate you jumping on here with me. I appreciate you sharing everything you have. And I look forward to to seeing you in person, shaking your hand, and us all working towards the common good. Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me. You bet, man. Where can people go to find out more about you and follow along? So let's see. Anything branded Keto Gain should be us. Um, I am uh, on Twitter at, at Tyler Cartwright. Instagram is at Ty underscore Cartwright because I didn't get into the Instagram game fast enough. I am uh, uh, on Facebook, although I do actually have a Facebook uh, fan page for a lot of my writings and musings on life. Uh, If you just search Facebook for a Tyler Cartwright, literally that's the name you'll find me there. It'll be a joke that if you've ever seen my face, it's a hard face to forget. So I'll be the one that looks like me. And uh, so, yeah, um, pretty responsive. So if you've got, people got questions want to know more about something i said or want to see the studies i might have mentioned or whatever just reach out and i'll be happy to share awesome man well i will certainly link out to that make make it easy for people to find you and like i said i appreciate you jumping on here with me if there's ever anything i can do for you man just let me know i appreciate it man have a good one take care brother